The following Dharma talk was given by Katie Yosha Scott Childress. Yosha is a senior student in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or to find out more about our various programs, visit us online at cmm.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. I wanted to talk to you today about one of our most prominent Zen ancestors, the sixth ancestor, Hui Nung. And I uh, wanted to bring some of his teachings here to us today. So this is from the Platform Sutra. One practice samadhi means at all times, whether walking, standing, sitting, or lying down, always practicing with a straightforward mind. The Vimalakirti Sutra says a straightforward mind is the place of enlightenment, and a straightforward mind is a pure land. <clears throat> Don't practice hypocrisy with your mind while you talk about being straightforward with your mouth. If you speak about one practice samadhi with your mouth, but you don't practice with a straightforward mind, you're no disciple of the Buddha. Simply practice with a straightforward mind and don't become attached to any dharma. So what is this one practice samadhi? I fear I may commit a hypocrisy talking about this, but I'll try to bring forward what I find helpful in this teaching. So the sixth ancestor of Zen, Hoenung, lived from 638 to 713 AD. And his teachings were written down and have been translated from Chinese. His teachings are called the Platform Sutra. And um, it's because supposedly he was sitting up on a platform, kind of like this, when he gave these um, teachings. And um, speaking to monastics, um, he was a teacher. Normally the word sutra is reserved for words that were spoken by the Buddha. And so the fact that uh, Hui Nung's teachings uh, were given this name, Sutra, um, shows that they have been held in very high regard um, all of these centuries. And um, again, he is the sixth ancestor of the Zen school, so was very instrumental in shaping what you know we today still practice. And um, and so. Uh, this text, the Platform Sutra, continues to be a foundational text for Chan and Zen schools and Zen students. Um, I'll say that, you know, I, I read it very early in my training. I think a lot of us do. And um, then just put it aside and didn't really think about it and, and didn't get a whole lot out of it. Um, and I've returned to it over the years a number of times and um, keep you know, appreciating how much it has to offer 
um, the depth of the teachings and the conciseness. Um, it's very rich. So the, the sutra begins with Hui Neng um, saying, good friends, clear your minds by reflecting on the Maha Prajna Paramita. So that's the sutra, the heart sutra that we chanted before. Form is no other than emptiness. Emptiness, no other than form. Form is exactly emptiness. Emptiness, exactly form. So he's saying, land there for a minute. And he stops speaking to clear his mind. And he didn't start speaking again for quite a while. So if you can imagine. And then he began with his path to the Dharma. So he was a woodcutter um, selling firewood. And he was really poor and illiterate. And one day he was delivering firewood to a store, one of his customers. And he heard a customer in the store leaving the store and um, reciting the Diamond Sutra. And hearing those words, he was suddenly awakened. And he said he, he thought maybe that it was, it was something from a past life, that, that he was completely awakened by these words that he heard. And um, he asked the person, what is it that you're reciting? And who told him it's it's part of the Diamond Sutra, and um, I learned it from this teacher Hong Gren, who's the fifth ancestor of Zen. He teaches at this monastery. You should go see him. And so he made arrangements uh, to take care of his his mother, his widowed mother, and uh, he left and went to go see Hungren at this monastery. Um, and he got there and was granted an interview with the teacher. And the teacher asked him, so why have you come here? And he said, and, and where are you from? He said, well, I'm from this city in the south, and um, uh, I've come here um, for only one reason, which is to become a Buddha. And the teacher scoffed at him and said, you're from the South. You guys are barbarians. What do you mean you want to become a Buddha? And the sixth ancestor replied, and you know, of course, he's poor and he's illiterate. And there was, uh, at this time, um, a sort of elitism um, so not only this divide between North and South, but this elitism of monastics being very literate and educated and, um, you know, it wasn't for everybody. And the sixth ancestor replied, or Hui Neng replied, people may be from the North or South, but their Buddha nat- but not their do, sorry, but not their Buddha nature. The bodies of This barbarian and the master aren't the same. But how can our Buddha natures differ? So he's holding his ground here in this really, you know, intimidating situation. 
So this is this one of the first teachings that we're getting from this young person. And uh, the, the teacher recognized, okay, this, this person actually has <clears throat> a deep understanding of the Dharma. And he's illiterate, and he's a barbarian, according to our culture. And so he sent him off to work in the rice threshing room, um, basically so as not to um, get him in trouble with the other monks who might seek some retribution if he were to hold this person up who um, you know, doesn't have the trappings of what they expect a, um, a learned person to look like, learned in the Dharma. And so um, after eight months, um, and Huineng's just toiling away there. He's not ordained. He's just, you know, a worker. Um, the the teacher announced, you know, I'm I'm ready to transmit the Dharma. Um, you know, I'm getting ready to retire, and so um, I uh, call on all of you uh, to. Um, I'm ready to give the robe and the bowl of transmission to one of you. So I call on all of you to um, show me who, who's ready to, to take, this, take this over. Um, write a poem showing your understanding. So everybody was pretty intimidated by this. And there is a head monk who is, you know, pretty much a teacher already and, and was clearly the person who was going to write the best poem. So everybody was like, well, I'm not even going to write a poem. And so they were waiting for the head monk to write the poem. But the head monk actually had doubts about his, his insight. You know, he, he didn't feel like he was really ready to, you know, be a teacher. Um, but he also knew that he was expected to go ahead and put his, his poem up. And so he, he went and posted this poem um, that, uh, that was like this. So he, he wrote it on something up in the Buddha hall. The body is the Bodhi tree. The mind is like a clear mirror. At all times we must strive to polish it and must not let the dust collect. So the dust is like these, uh, these defilements or kleshas. These are um, the things that make us um, not clear, not happy, continuing to crave to be something or somewhere else than where we are and what we are. And so this poem is basically saying, okay, those things come up. Wipe it clear. Just keep keep seeing it, letting it moving. Keep keep that dust. Keep that mirror clear. <clears throat> and so publicly, the the teacher praised this poem and said, "Yeah, this is this is good. You all should recite this. You should memorize it." And um, and he said, "You know, it's nobody's going to fall into evil realms by by practicing this." It's good practice. It's fine. 
But then privately, he met with the head monk. And, uh, you know, the head monk was like, well, what did you think of my poem? And um, the, the teacher said, you know, it's fine. You, you've, you've, you've gotten to the threshold, but you haven't actually walked through the door. So Huineng, again, toiling away, hears a monk reciting that poem. And he asks him about it. He says, well, what is that? Where'd you, where'd you hear that? And so the, the monk says, oh, it's this wonderful poem that was written by the head monk. Um, and Huineng says, oh, can you, can you show it to me? Because Huineng, you know, doesn't get to go into the Buddha hall. He's, you know, you know, like this laborer. And so he's brought into the Buddha hall and, and read the poem. He can't read. And Huineng asks, asks the monk who's shown him there, would you mind writing a poem up on the wall for me? Because I can't write. So um, the monk obliged. And Huineng's poem said, Bodhi isn't some kind of tree. This mirror doesn't have a stand. Our Buddha nature is forever clear. Where do you get this dust? So Huineng is upending this idea, this notion of dust or kleshas being apart from our, our Buddha nature. If our nature is, is, is completely clear, what is this dust? Where does it come from? How is it different? How are we going to wipe it away if it's not if, if our nature is already clear. So in the middle of the night, Hongren, the master, called Huineng to his chamber. And he um, privately transmitted the robe and the bowl. And these were symbolic. Um, they were supposedly the robe and the bowl of Bodhidharma, the first ancestor of Zen. So when you're given that, then you're empowered to, to be the teacher. And um, he, Hongren, uh, accompanied Huineng down to the ferry in the middle of the night and sent him off and said, basically, you better hide out for a while because people are going to be really pissed when they find out that you got the Roman bowl. So, you know, this is, it, it's, it's, um, it's such a, an interesting, uh, there's questions about the authenticity of, of this whole story. Um, Huineng definitely existed. Um, but, you know, the, it, it comes down to us because these different points are really important. And um, this um, sort of upending of, of hierarchy, right? What's high and what's low? And, and what does Buddha nature have to do with that? You know, this is an integral part of, of what makes Zen what it is. This, you know, sort of earthy, immediate, um, accessible, uh, form of Buddhism that 
does not necessarily depend upon these different, you know, statuses and attainments, um, and uh, and is not not discriminating. Uh, there's also um, this premise of sudden enlightenment. So you know, the sixth ancestor heard these words and was suddenly enlightened. And um, so there became these sort of sudden and gradual schools. Is it gradual? Do we practice, 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 and then become enlightened? Or is it sudden, and suddenly we're enlightened? And uh, again, this, this, um, this pointing to Buddha nature being already who we are and what we are, is part of this sudden, sudden school in that it's already here. So we can't actually even develop it. It's already pure. We can't purify it. And at that time and still, you know, there are sects of Buddhism that do a lot of chanting, chanting the Buddha's name over and over and over again and different bowing practices and, and, you know, uh, memorization and recitation, right? And so this was considered more of a gradual school. If I, if I, you know, say the Buddha's name twenty thousand times, I'm going to become enlightened. Versus this gra- this this sudden, immediate, right here, right now, already, already pure. <clears throat> So these were these were shaping these were shaping what has come down to us as as Buddhas as Zen Buddhism, and then also his his urgency in going off to study with a teacher that that's still around. We've got this image of a fire upon our head that you know we we need to practice. We we really need to engage this with urgency as a matter of life and death. It's not something to put off for tomorrow. We always need to keep this right here, right in front of us. Um, So, you know, Buddhism today in the United States is still dominated by mostly educated people and um, also people who may have uh, disposable time and income to be able to go on retreat. And um, it's not necessarily that it has to be that way, but it has emerged that way. And so, you know, as Buddhists, we need to think about how can, how can we make this more inclusive? How can we really see everybody here? So, um, this quote that I read, one practice samadhi means at all times, whether walking, standing, sitting, or lying down, always practicing with a straightforward mind. What is that? You know, we're, we're given meditation instructions for zazen, You sit still, silently, 
upright. We focus our mind on our breath. See a thought, let it go. So, and to see that one way is, is like the, the head monk's poem to keep wiping the dust away, the thoughts, letting them go. But the Huaynung's poem is saying that there isn't any place for dust to land. And so we're practicing all the time, sitting, standing, walking down, walking. And he calls this one practice samadhi. Samadhi is usually used to describe this really deep meditation, meditative concentration, this merging of, of subject and object. And so the sixth ancestor is pointing to something that's beyond our seated meditation. Zazen is the heart of Zen practice. Za means seated. So what does Zen mean? Because there, there's Zen that's not Za. <laughs> then, what, then where are we? Right? Bodhidharma, the first uh, ancestor of Zen, is um, famous for saying Zen is a special transmission outside the scriptures with no reliance on words and letters, a direct pointing to the human mind. So anything that we've heard or read about Zen, Bodhidharma saying, that's not it. Can't find it in any words. So where is it? He's famously said to have sat in Zazen facing a wall for nine years. Okay, so Zazen is definitely the core of our practice. And the sixth ancestor is talking about one practice samadhi means at all times, whether walking, standing, sitting, or lying down, always practicing with a straightforward mind. So how do we practice with a straightforward mind? Do we even know what a straightforward mind is? Sixth Ancestor quotes Vimalakirti Sutra saying, a straightforward mind is the place of enlightenment and a straightforward mind is the pure land. Simply practice with a straightforward mind and don't become attached to any dharma. This is what is meant by one practice samadhi. And another translation of this passage says, only practicing straightforward mind and in all things having no attachments whatsoever is called the samadhi of oneness. Straightforward mind in another translation is also translated as undivided mind. So when we sit down in zazen, settle down, we have this chance to look at What's going on in this wild, wily mind, right? And we can start seeing how 
we are divided, or well, we can't really be divided, but we have this sense of being divided. So it seems really straightforward. We're given this instruction. Pay attention to your breath. Inhale, count one. Exhale, count two. Inhale, three. Exhale, four, and so forth. Till you get to 10 and then start over. Like that is so straightforward. Oh, and if a thought comes up, just see it, let it go, and come back. It's very straightforward. It's very simple. And it's really difficult. It's super difficult because it's so simple. It's hard for our minds to be really simple, really trusting that simplicity, that moment-to-moment awareness, concentration, inhale, one, exhale, two. Simply practice with a straightforward mind and don't become attached to any dharma. So as soon as a thought arises, if we don't recognize it as a thought, we're kind of off to the races, right? We're immediately attached. We're identifying with whatever's going on. We're just, we're gone. We're in that thought, right? Wherever, and then maybe it goes to another thought and another one, and then we finally, oh, wait, I'm supposed to be doing zazen. See the thought, let it go, come back, right? So we finally kind of catch ourselves and stop attaching. So I think what the sixth ancestor is talking about is that these thoughts come up. That's not a problem. It's this attaching to them, okay? Rather than being able to just see, oh, that's a thought. That's a feeling. That's an emotion. Just letting these things come and go, wash through, instead of blindly following, attaching, going down those, those dark alleyways. So when we can actually just, you know, recognize we, we've got a thought, it kind of just bursts like a bubble, you know? It had all this integrity and then pfft, it's just gone. We don't actually have to like let it go by going and putting it somewhere. It's just like we saw it, it goes away. But you know, once you've been doing this for a while, it's important not to let that noticing also become an attachment where uh, we start getting down on ourselves. So I know, you know, it's hard. It's hard for me to concentrate. And that's really humbling. And I can, you know, be like, why am I so bad at this? I've been doing this for a long time. Like, I should be better at this. That's a whole nother attachment. Whole nother blind alley. I'm just taking a ride. Just keep coming back. Keep it really simple. 
Really, really simple. So whatever we're doing, you know, whether we're sitting in zazen or we're walking or driving or riding on the subway, we can notice what's going on in our minds. We see people, we make these snap judgments, we know, we, we, we put them into a category immediately. We know something about them. And we really don't, right? But we just immediately do that. And, you know, for me, again, that can come with this charge of like getting mad at myself for doing that, which is another attachment. Just see it, see what happened, let it go. Just look at that person. You know, I kind of practice this where I, you know, see somebody and I, I see that I've like, you know, put them in a box and let that go and just kind of get really curious, like, who are you? Who are you? There's so many people. They all have lives. They all have, you know, miraculous complexity and beauty and, and intrigue. And, and in that moment where we put them into a box, we, we, we don't, we don't recognize that, right? We're in a culture, just like Hong Gren was. You know, he saw something when Huai Nung first arrived. All he saw was this box. I just see a barbarian, right? He couldn't see who was sitting in front of him. And we're in a culture that has all kinds of boxes, and all kinds of biases, and, you know, it's, it's okay, right, that it's not our fault in a sense that, that we filter the world that way, but we have to see it. We have to, we have to take responsibility for what, for that coming up and not follow it, not get attached to it. I think, you know, when you, you've been doing this also for a while, at least for me, you know, I start seeing thoughts that I'm just not proud of, right? I don't want my mind to think those things. And again, you know, this can become this like real heaviness where I, you know, start really getting down on myself and feeling this like, oh, this horrible person, right? And, you know, that's just more noise. Just keep seeing it coming back. Don't get, don't ignore what's going on, but don't attach to it. Don't get caught up in it. Don't suppress it. Just keep, keep seeing it, keep feeling it, keep letting it move. So red pine translated straightforward mind as undivided mind. He said, one practice samadhi means at all times, whether walking, standing, sitting, or lying down, always practicing with an undivided mind. The Vimalakirti Sutra says an undivided mind is the place of enlightenment and an undivided mind is the pure land. During our uh, spring ongo training intensive, we studied Dogen's fascicle on undivided activity. 
zen-ki. And in that case, zen means whole or all, and ki means function, machine, or works. So we have this, this term, this undivided, that's so central to our practice and our realization. Undivided. And I think of ways that, you know, being, feeling divided, you know, and the suffering that that causes, like being stressed out, for me, can have this real feeling of being divided. There's, I have too many obligations in too little time, and I just can't do it. And, you know, there's this sense of just kind of freaking out too much. There's no space. So when we think about spaciousness and having the amount of time that we need to do each thing that's in front of us, right? It's very satisfying when we can just do what we're doing. We have exactly the right amount of time. We don't need to hurry. We don't need to be freaked out about what's what we have to do next, or we're not carrying around like the emotional residue of something heavy that happened and we don't know how to deal with it. So instead of doing what we're doing, we're like processing this really upsetting stuff that's going on and we're not, again, just landing in what we're actually doing, which is undivided, straightforward. It's always there. We're always actually only able to operate in this moment, but our mind is so multifarious that it can, we can be doing something with our bodies and our mind is off, churning away. And that sense of division is suffering. It's suffering. And returning to what we are doing, where we are at this moment, is pointing toward our straightforward, undivided mind, our liberation. It's not a small thing, even though it's super simple. So um, I've been uh, in a a group, a committee, that uh, has been uh, very dysfunctional um, and uh, disorganized and sometimes uncivil. And um, recently I was at this meeting and this person made an attack on me and called me a liar. And... um, you know, when, when something like that happens, we get, you know, publicly disgraced or blamed. Um, it can really knock us off our feet, right? And again, take away that straightforward mind, that landing right where we are, as we're just reeling. In, in Buddhism, there are these eight worldly winds that really can just they just blow us around. They kind of churn the whole world around, and they come in pairs. So praise and blame 
or disgrace as one of those pairs. And um, when we get caught up in that, we just keep creating more karma that is coming out of that energy. And praise is the same way, actually. Somebody praises you, and it's really hard to hold your ground sometimes, right? Because suddenly, you know, like I take a dance class and, you know, be in it, complicated, lots of steps, and the teacher makes some remark, you know, to like kind of call me out that I'm doing a good job. I forget all the steps. I'm just like this, what? Right? Because like, it's, it's hard to get praised, you know, and get called out. Hey, good job. And you're like, oh, me? Oh, wow, I did a good job. And then, you know, we just keep going and going with it. And, and then this blame and disgrace. I mean, you know, we, we live with this, this fear of this a lot in our professional lives. We're trying to avoid blame, avoid getting disgraced in any way. And, you know, something like this is like where I was actually um, attacked, you know, is one thing. But a lot of this stuff just goes on in our mind where we're imagining that we're getting blamed for something. We're imagining that this person doesn't like us and has it out for us and, you know, we're hoping for a promotion, dreading criticism, trying to prove something to some mythical somebody somewhere, right? Imagining that we're going to impress somebody who we think is, we really want their attention. And so we keep imagining that we're going to do something really great to impress them. There's a lot of this. We spend a lot of energy with these, these winds, these, these worldly winds. So just going back to that example of, um, you know, being attacked verbally, um, at least the way that I practice that is, you know, to feel that you know, to feel the, what, what happened and um, not ignore that that happened and that I'm feeling it, um, but also not let it take over the house. Like, notice if I'm going, what? He called me a liar. I'm going to say this to him and, you know, you can just go way off to the races. See it. See what's going on. It's another uh, Buddhist teaching about uh, the second dart, right? Somebody says something to you that hurts you. Ugh, it hurt, right? That's the first dart. But then the second dart, he called me a liar. Ugh, I hate him. Ugh. We just keep that dart over and over again, right? It's... We, that first start, what was it? It was just pain. Like, let it blow right through. Don't pick it up. <laughs> Keep going with it. 
So we do that. We do that. We just can't let it go. And kind of fun, or um, I don't know, later in that meeting, I, um, I was making some point, and um, I was saying that I was agreeing with something that uh, this other kind of disagreeable macho guy had said. But instead of saying that guy's name, I said the name of the guy who had attacked me. So I basically, I praised him by saying, you know, I agree with what so-and-so is saying because, you know, here's why it's a good point. And I, I was like, wow, you know, just thinking like, wow, I just like messed up their names. That's interesting. I wonder why I did that. And this guy who had attacked me was so mollified by that. It was really amazing. And he actually um, made a comment that, you know, showed some self-awareness of how abrasive he is, right? And, you know, I didn't mean to throw him a bone, but it was actually really the best thing that I could have done, right? Because there he is, you know? He, he's, we're, we all have these, like, um, personalities that um, are going to be really annoying at certain times. And, you know, being able to, like, be generous and, and, and open up that space where we can say, oh, yeah, yeah, sometimes I'm really a jerk. Fantastic. So simply practice with a straightforward mind and don't become attached to any dharma. Whether walking, standing, sitting or lying down, always practicing with a straightforward mind. Consider the karma that we create when we're distracted, right? We're just, we're doing one thing and our mind is somewhere else. And we're like motivated by these worldly winds. We're like running away from possible blame or disgrace and we're craving, please, somebody pay attention to me. Please praise me, right? What are we creating when we're doing all that? I mean, we see this all over the place. So this direct pointing to the human mind means that my words and what I'm saying right now can't take you through the door. You have to go through the door yourself. We each have to go through the door. Our straightforward, undivided mind is the door. The door is open, but no one can take us, take us there. It's always available. It's always here, now. So when we get freaked out, and feel really compressed or depressed. We're attaching, <clears throat> we're attaching 
to something, right? Or we're craving, picking up the phone, looking to see who is going to praise us, who's going to pay attention to us. Straightforward. It's always here. It's always one step, this step, this breath, right here. It's not complicated, but we make it complicated. We have a lot of habits, a lot of old ways, a culture that we live in. So we're being given this example by this guy who kind of bucked the system, you know. He didn't, he rejected, rejected the discrimination, rejected the ways of, the gradual ways of practicing, said, straightforward mind, all the time. That's who you are. So I'll leave you with a final teaching and verse from the sixth ancestor. This is at the end of the Platform Sutra. Not the very end, but very near the end. It's, a, it's reassuring. He said, If people in the future ages wish to seek the Buddha, all they need to do is understand what a sentient being is, and they will be able to understand what a Buddha is. Because the Buddha mind is possessed by sentient beings. Apart from sentient beings, there is no Buddha mind. This is the verse. Deluded, a Buddha is a sentient being. Enlightened, a sentient being is a Buddha. A foolish Buddha is a being. A wise being is a Buddha. A biased Buddha is a being. An unbiased being is a Buddha. As long as your mind is biased, the Buddha dwells in a being. The moment you wake up unbiased, a being becomes a Buddha. Your mind contains a Buddha. Your Buddha is the real one. If you didn't have the Buddha mind, where would you go to find a Buddha? Thank you for listening. To find out more about the Zen Center of New York City's programs, retreats and residency, please visit our website at zmm.org slash zcnyc.